0: Retreat is a special and unique time in our lives because it's a chance to disengage or disentangle from the busyness of our worldly activities. It's a chance to step back, to settle down. Chance to taste the peace of putting it all down, even for just a few moments at a time, to experience a mind that is free of grasping, free of clinging, free of holding on. A chance to experience a mind that lets go of struggle. A unique aspect of the Buddhist teachings is that it begins and ends with right understanding. Rather than beginning with some dogma or some belief, it really begins with our understanding of how things are working. And right understanding is also the end of the path. It's really the wisdom of awakening, the wisdom of enlightenment. both on retreat and in our lives outside as well, we need to find ways to keep turning our minds towards the Dharma, towards what is true, towards compassion, so that we create a context of right understanding. We develop a right understanding that can hold all of the many ups and downs and twists and turns of our practice. There are four reflections, or four contemplations, which help us do this. And they're called the four mind-changing reflections, or the reflections which turn the mind towards the dharma. If we reflect on them, or hold them in our lives, and also let them percolate throughout the retreat, that they're really in our minds, even as we're sitting and walking. In this meditation practice, these four reflections or contemplations, they keep us on the glide path of awakening. The first of them first of these reflections is the contemplation on the preciousness of this human birth. Now in the vast cosmology of the Buddhist teachings, there are countless world systems, and each world system has all of these planes of existence, from the lower worlds of suffering to the human realm to the Heavens of sense delight to, to the heavens of formless bliss. There are innumerable immense expanses of time and rebirths without beginning. When I first went to India, and my teacher Munindraji would speak about all of these different realms and the, the vastness of the journey the immensity of time and rebirth, You would say, you don't have to believe all this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> well, within this vast cosmology, it's emphasized how rare and precious it is to take human birth in this endless round of rebirths, of life after life in all of these different realms, the Buddha emphasized so often just how precious it was to take human form. And he likened it to arriving at a great treasure island, a great island of treasures. Why? Because as a human being, when we know the way, when we understand the Dharma, when we understand how things work, every happiness is available to us because we come to understand the causes of happiness and we have the opportunity to practice to develop those causes and conditions this is not true necessarily in the different the different planes the different possibilities and so we reflect on the preciousness of our circumstances And whether or not we believe in past and future lives, whether or not we believe in other planes of existence, we can reflect on the precious human birth, this reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma, in the context of this life, in the context of our experiences right now. The most basic principle in Buddha Dharma is that everything arises out of conditions. Things are not happening haphazardly. They're not happening accidentally. Everything is arising out of conditions. And these conditions are always changing. Now we've seen so dramatically people leading very happy, peaceful, stable lives, and then something happens and in a moment the whole world can be turned upside down. It can be natural disasters, it can be acts of violence, it can be illness, it can be disease, and none of us are exempt from these changing conditions. We need to let this in, that everything arises out of conditions, that they're always and continually changing. And so when we contemplate our lives now and we see the great blessing of having the leisure, having the time to practice, to be on retreat for six weeks or three months, to have the leisure, the time to do this, have the interest and the motivation to practice? Can we really see them and, and appreciate them as a gift and a blessing in our lives, rather than just taking this circumstance for granted? When we do this, it is the contemplation of our precious human birth. That's what makes this possible. You know, among all the human beings on this planet, think of how few have the conditions present to even hear teachings of awakening, teachings of liberation, basic teachings of awareness, of mindfulness. It's very few who even have the opportunity to hear this. And among those who hear them, how few of those have the interest to practice And even of those who have the interest to practice how few actually do it. Now it's a very small number, given the numberless beings. So when we reflect on our own situation, and we reflect on the conditions necessary, that brings us all here together. To hear the Dharma, to have the interest, to have the motivation to actually do it, to put it into practice. Mm. is a very rare set of circumstances in the world. When we reflect on this, it very much helps to put our own individual stories and dramas in a much different context When we understand that we ourselves through our own past wholesome actions have created the conditions for practice to happen, when we reflect on this, it creates a tremendous sense of confidence, respect for ourselves and for everyone else here because we realize this is not happening by accident. It happens out of causes, and we ourselves have created those causes. Now It's like the Bodhisattva, the night of his enlightenment, as he was sitting under the Bodhi tree, and Mara came with all the forces trying to move him from that throne of awakening. And one of the last uh, ploys of Mara was to call up doubt in, in the Bodhisattva's mind. You know, questioning what right do you have to be sitting there? What, what right do you have to even aspire for awakening? And the famous legend which you're probably familiar with, you know, the Bodhisattva just reached down and touched the earth to bear witness to his right to be sitting there, bearing witness to all the many, many lifetimes you know, of practice and generosity and kindness and compassion, everything that created the conditions for that awakening to take place. Well, we ourselves have created those conditions you know, for us to be sitting here. So when we think of this and reflect on this precious human birth and the precious circumstances that have allowed us to be here in practice, it's really practicing the highest values of compassion, of kindness, of awakening out of ignorance. So this, it engenders this wonderful sense of self-respect and confidence and respect for others. Because sometimes, given our bizarre Western psychology, even this instruction can be co-opted by Mara. At one point when I was in Burma studying with Upandita, I was in a place where my practice just felt like it was slogging along you know, day after day, week after week, it didn't feel like I was making any progress at all, it was getting low energy and discouraged. And so Upandita in an effort to and bring some joy into my mind," he said. He said to me, "Contemplate your sila. Contemplate your moral behavior. You know, as a way of thinking. Oh, yeah, I'll do that, and I'll just feel real happy." <laughs> but of course, I heard the instruction: "Contemplate your sila," and it's like my mind immediately—the first response was, "What did I do wrong?" <laughs> Contemplate your sila. <laughs> So we have to be careful not to fall into that trap of self-judgment because it's not so often in our culture, in our society where where we are reminded to reflect on the wholesome things we've done, the skillful things we've done. And yet, that's exactly what engenders a sense of confidence, a sense of faith, a sense of joy. It's not done from a place of pride from a place of understanding. Yes, these are the conditions for awakening to happen. And we have seeded those conditions in our lives and that's why we're here. So this is the first contemplation that turns our mind towards the Dharma. It's the preciousness of this human birth both in the context of the vast cosmology and the preciousness of our circumstances within this very life. The second reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma, the second mind-changing reflection, is the contemplation of impermanence. Now what's so striking about this, and we'll talk often about it during the retreat, is that on an intellectual level, we all know that things change. This is not a difficult concept for us, or for anybody. Now, if we went out to ask anybody on the street you know, do things change? Of course, everybody will say yes. Unlike, do you have a self? <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that's a little more... <laughs> Pragmatic for the person on the street. But things change, yeah, everything changes. What's so strange though is we know it, and we know it clearly, intellectually and conceptually, but we don't really live from that understanding. We haven't integrated fully. It hasn't dropped down. We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily living in that experience of change. And so this is the great challenge for us, and this is the great gift of our practice, that we begin to embody, we begin to be living the wisdom of impermanence. And as we do this, as we contemplate this truth more and more deeply, starting from the intellectual level, but really dropping down in our practice to the direct experience of it, something quite amazing happens. The heart and mind relax. When we are really seeing directly, intimately, the truth of change, that seeing deconditions grasping it, deconditions clinging. And so we feel the heart relax we settle back into a much easier way of being with this flow. It said that it was this reflection on impermanence that inspired the bodhisattva you know, in his quest for awakening. He said or reflected that why should I, who am subject to birth and death and change, why should I, Go on seeking that which is subject to birth and death and change. Why should I make some temporary experience the goal of my aspirations? Was well, precisely through seeing, through contemplating the changing nature of things, it awakened in the Bodhisattva as it has awakened in all of us an aspiration or we could call it a wholesome desire for something beyond birth and death, an aspiration for the deathless. And yet in our lives, because we have not really embodied this wisdom, this clear seeing of change, A good part of the time, perhaps even most of the time, we find ourselves seeking some other thing that's going to change. We're leaning forward in our lives, anticipating often just the next hit of experience. And we live our lives waiting for the next something. Could be the next activity, the next event, the next meal, can be here in this rather rarefied context, the next breath, you know, where we're sitting there as if the next thing will finally satisfy us. And so we're toppling forward with that sense of wanting or grasping or desire or anticipation or planning we find our lives then always in that energetic stance of topple. It's like toppling into the next thing. Why? Because whatever it is, whatever it is that we're anticipating, will also just become part of this changing flow. It's so amazing It's really amazing that when we look back at our experience we see how true this is. Just think back to, if you can even remember, what you experienced in your sitting last week. You know, whatever it was that was so dramatic and so intense or so problematic or so wonderful or whatever, where is it now? just another empty phenomena which has arisen and passed away. So we know that, we really know it when we look back at our experience, but somehow when we look ahead, we just get dazzled by the possibilities. And that's what captures us, because we're not at that time actually reflecting or bringing to mind the truth of impermanence. And Nindraji, my, my first teacher, he used to say, where is the end of seeing? Where is the end of hearing? Where is the end of tasting, of touching, of thinking? And it's not that there's anything wrong with these experiences. It's just that they do not have the capacity to fulfill our longing, our aspiration for peace for completion, for fulfillment. Why? Because they don't last, because they're impermanent. The paradox of the spiritual life, the paradox of meditative understanding, is the realization (coughs) that as objects of desire, Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, thoughts, images, emotions, as objects of desire, they always leave us unfulfilled. Yet, as objects of mindfulness, these very same experiences become the vehicle for awakening. And so again, it comes back to the basic understanding that the problem is not in what's happening, in what's arising. It's all a question of how we're relating to these experiences. If we relate with desire, with grasping, not seeing their impermanent nature, we end up suffering. If we relate with mindfulness, with awareness, with non-grasping, these very same experiences become the path to enlightenment. So it's not a question, then, of closing our senses and pulling back from experience. It's really a question of opening our eye of wisdom and being free in experience. It's changing our relationship to them. So how can we awaken? How can we nurture this contemplation? this mind-changing reflection on impermanence so that it does become strong and so that we actually are living the wisdom rather than simply knowing it intellectually. The experience, the direct, intimate experience of impermanence happens on many levels. It happens on the level of seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena, as often happens on retreat, in meditation. It's the microscopic level. But we can also be living in that awareness of impermanence, not only on that more refined, microscopic, concentrated level, we can also be experiencing it directly on very familiar levels of experience, in things that we already know quite well, just as an example, when you get up after the talk, if you can remember between now and then, when you get up and you start walking and you leave the hall, pay careful attention just to the flow of experience, the sensations in your body as you stand, what you see, the feeling, the sensations as you begin moving, the sights, the thoughts that may come, the different feelings. Just watch the flow of experience. And then you might reflect by the time you get to your walking place, reflect for a moment on what happened to the experience you had when you first stood up. It's completely gone. And not only the experience you had when you first stood up, but even the experience of simply the moment before It's all happening like water over a waterfall. This does not take Buddhahood to observe. Because this is just the fact of our ordinary experience. We simply need to pay attention. The problem is that it's so ordinary, the truth of it is so ordinary, that we have stopped paying attention to it. We just overlook it. And yet when we drop into the awareness of this continually changing nature on this very ordinary level, we can observe in the moments of seeing, of really being with the changes that are taking place moment after moment after moment, what happens is we recognize and we see and we feel the mind that is not holding on. This is the power of seeing impermanence, because in those moments the mind is not grasping, and so we get a taste, direct and immediate. We get a taste of that freedom. There's another way to bring this contemplation into your sitting practice. And Upandita worked with us a lot I think we may have mentioned this in the first half. When we would go to report our experience, you know, in the interviews, he wanted a very clear and simple report just on what happened. You know, I felt the rising and this is what I experienced. I felt the falling movement of the in and out. This is what I experienced. Different sensations happened, different thoughts. So we just report on what happened. But he also asked us to report on what happened to each experience. So sensation arose, what happened to it as we observed it? A thought arose, what happened to the thought as we observed it? Well, this was very demanding. I mean, if we were not paying attention carefully, we wouldn't know. But by emphasizing that aspect, it became so clear that whatever it was that we were observing, in one way or another changed. It either got stronger or it got weaker or it disappeared or something happened to it. So we can bring that quality of attention, quality of investigation into the sitting in a very, in a very exact way. In those moments, when we are seeing things changing, and we're not just thinking that things change, but we're actually seeing yes, the thought changes, the sensation changes, the sound changes, when we're seeing it, in that moment, the mind has let go. And Ajahn Chah had some very simple teachings about the relationship of this to our happiness. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. It's just that mind which has let go of grasping that happens through this contemplation on impermanence. There are other aspects of this reflection, aspects which contemplate some very obvious truths of change, and when we look at them with some care, they really can jolt us out of a sense of complacency, not only in our meditation, but in our lives. It becomes a very powerful force for waking up, the end of birth is death. This is a reflection on impermanence. And to really look at that. As time passes, our lives are just getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And so we could really see, in terms of our lives, time is just running out for all of us. It's inevitable. Do we really... Let this in. Do we realize this? Do we hold it in our awareness that our life is inexorably heading towards death? And as we let it in, does it frighten us? Or does it inspire us? What's our relationship to it? It's so interesting that in our awareness of death, We're so focused on other people dying. It's always other people who are dying. Which, of course, is true. I mean, we're still around. But we never or rarely make the leap of understanding, yeah, oh, yeah, it's other people who are dying, hmm. (laughs) I will too. You know, we don't often think that way. And yet, the Buddha is pointing out how important it is to reflect on this. A great reflection, it's really, it's a wonderful contemplation, is to imagine oneself being on one's deathbed. Really, and, and to just try to imagine being in those dying moments. And as a gesture to our American comfort zone. We could imagine actually being in bed. <laughs> okay. I mean, as we know, death can happen in lots of unexpected ways, but okay, just we'll give ourselves a bed. <laughs> or not, if if some other way actually you know, wakes us up a little bit more. But to contemplate, okay, we're actually in that moment, those moments of dying, what is of importance? You know, what do we have in, them, in that moment? What's of value? It will only be the quality of our minds, the quality of our understanding. That is the only thing that will be of value. So of course the challenge is to really be asking that question now so that we can make wise choices for what we do and where we put our energy. One of my favorite um, descriptions of someone dying with wisdom I usually talk about this on retreat because it's just so inspiring to me. Uh, is the description of uh, the death of Henry David Thoreau, you know, who died quite young. He was in his 40s. I think it was from TB. But the same wisdom he had about the natural world, it was that same wisdom he brought to bear about his own life and death, this is somebody describing, a friend of his, describing his death. Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I have heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. And Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die. So of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, Aunt. (laughs) (laughs) So where does that wisdom come from in this... Given his tremendous powers of observation you know, of the natural world and seeing the cycle of changes and of birth and death, it's clear that in some way he just embodied that wisdom of impermanence. And so his mind was at peace and it's quite remarkable and inspiring. Another contemplation of impermanence, the end of birth is death. Another contemplation, the end of accumulation is dispersion. You know, when you think of all of the things and all of the time and effort we spend in our lives accumulating things, I don't know if you have the same experience, but I'm in awe of how closets seem to get filled with junk <laughs> you know it's just almost by doing nothing there must be some law of nature that we just accumulate things and for what you know if if that really has become a central part of our lives totally useless because it all ends in dispersion anyway The end of all meeting is separation. Another kind of contemplation of impermanence. No matter how close our relationships are, the end of all coming together of people, one way or another, will end in separation. This is just how it is. It's the truth of impermanence. And yet how often do we get so entangled in our attachments and our relationships that the parting becomes a source of overwhelming sorrow and grief. It's through not understanding, it's through not having integrated that basic wisdom. Now the Buddha said in commenting about how people hold so tightly you know, in their attachments and relationships. He said, in the course of endless lifetimes, that people, that a person has shed more tears over the loss of loved ones than the water in all the great oceans. That's, I mean, just think of what that would mean. Now, for most of us, you know, at our level of understanding, Some feeling of loss and sorrow are probably quite natural and normal. But the more we contemplate the truth of impermanence, the more we really contemplate it and remember it and think about it and understand it, even though there might still be feelings of loss or sorrow, we won't be drowning in those waters. There'll be a place of wisdom that can hold it all. And we begin to understand through the contemplation of impermanence, we really begin to understand quite deeply and incisively the difference between love and attachment. Because they're two very different things we begin to experience the difference between the feelings of loss and the feelings of grief. They're two very different things, although it often gets confused. It's reflection on impermanence and the seeing of impermanence, and the contemplating of it, which reoriented, redirects our mind towards letting go towards freedom. So the first reflection that turns the mind towards the Dharma is the reflection on the precious human birth, the preciousness of our circumstances, and how rare it is, and how we ourselves, through our own past actions, have created the conditions for us to be here. Second reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma is the contemplation on impermanence, on all of the levels I talked about. The third reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma is the contemplation of the law of karma. Last week I spoke quite a lot about that. But tonight just mention a few aspects, elaborate a few aspects. Basically, the law of karma is the understanding that actions have consequences, that actions bring results. But the Buddha went one essential step further in clarifying this law. And it's this clarification which actually is the source of the possibility of genuine happiness in our lives. Not only happiness in our own lives, it becomes the source when it's understood for peace in the world. And that clarification is, in this law of cause and effect, that what most deeply conditions the result of an action, what most deeply conditions the result of the action is the motivation behind it. So motive, motivation becomes the key element of our understanding karma. As I mentioned last week, the phrase that has been so powerful for me, as a reminder, as a touchstone for this reflection, not only in the meditation practice, but can be in our lives, everything rests on the tip of motivation. That is the key element. That's what we need to see with tremendous clarity. The great gift of the retreat is that it gives the opportunity for us to quiet down enough so that we actually can see our motives. And when we look, we see how challenging it is because often the motives are not clear. They may be mixed or they may be a series of conflicting ones. So it's not a simple matter. A couple of years ago, I was on retreat and I was reading through uh, some of the suttas and I came across a sutta discourse of the Buddha that I thought Sharon would really like for her book, on faith. Now, as most of you know, among dharma teachers, a good story is worth a lot. There's kind of a vulture-like attitude (laughs) around a good story. So I came across this in the sutta, and my first thought was, oh, this will be great for Sharon. And my second thought was, no, I'm going to keep it for myself. (laughs) And my third thought was, no, I'll give her the story, and that way more will come back to me. (laughs) That was my contemplation on karma. (laughs) And then my fourth thought was, no, that's just being selfish. Just give her the story but I'll tell her what I'm going through. <laughs> you know, and sort of really hoping to inculcate some sense of debt. <laughs> so I'm just watching, you know, because I was on retreat, I could just I could just watch my mind go through all this. And so at a certain point, I just kind of said, Joseph, <laughs> where in all of this kind of is a moment of, just purity, a moment of generosity. Because it was such conflicting, it was such a series of conflicting motives. What was really interesting for me was to see that in the midst of this long train of thought, I abbreviated it quite a bit, <laughs> in this long train of thought, I saw there was a moment of genuine purity. And it was in that very first moment, the th- when I just had that first thought, yeah, this would be a great story for Sharon. And what was interesting was I realized that even though I had all these other mixed motives, after they had run their course, I could always come back to that moment of purity. That was there. That was available. That was accessible. But it was only accessible when we're aware, when, when we're actually paying attention and not simply acting out the mix of motives. It's awareness of our motivations that gives us the space and the possibility, letting go of the less skillful ones, acting on the skillful ones. That is the tremendous power of mindfulness. And you know, we all have very different motives for practice, for coming here. Maybe for some people it's the motive of really reducing the level of stress You know, in all lives, which, especially in these times, can be getting quite high. This is a way of cooling out. Maybe other people come and the motivation is wanting to come out of some you know, deep psychological or emotional suffering that's in one's life. Maybe the motivation for some of you is really to awaken, to become enlightened. So our motives may all be different and our motives change as the practice goes on. What has been tremendously helpful for me is to see that all of our different motives, whatever they may be, practice can all be held in the context of the understanding that whatever our motive, we are not practicing for ourselves alone. That is a powerful understanding, that we can undertake the practice with the motivation of wanting it to be for the benefit and happiness of all beings. Now we've talked about this before and I emphasize it because it's so powerfully opening. And we all know, I think, that our practice will inevitably help others, can't help but help others. But when we put that motivation right at the beginning, let my practice be for the benefit of, the, of others, this as you know, in Buddhism is called bodhicitta, that aspiration then informs or suffuses all of the efforts we make in practice. So one very obvious question arises, and it's, I think, an important question. How does sitting here watching our breath help anybody else? You know, in, out, in, out, in, out. What does this have to do with benefiting the world? When we understand the great karmic importance of motivation in determining either the suffering or the happiness of beings, ourselves and others, it becomes essential that we understand our motives, that we see them clearly, And so our practice, just by watching the breath and being in the body and noticing the thoughts and feelings that come up, we begin to become very aware of what our motives are and that enables us to act on the skillful ones, to let the unskillful ones go. That ability has tremendous effect in the world. There's one teaching Which I've kind of put into a modern context. It says, if you came down to breakfast in the morning, okay, so just imagine, imagine this scenario. You come down to the breakfast in the morning, you have a choice of finding $10 million or somebody you don't particularly like pointing out accurately your faults. Which would you choose? <laughs> well, the point of the teaching is that actually the person there who could really point out you know, one's faults, one's unskillful behaviors and actions would be of immensely more value, value to us. Such is the value of self-knowledge. It's helpful, as we undertake this practice of self-knowledge, to have a sense of humor along the way, because, I believe it was in Kazantzakis' book, over the Greek, you know, where he said, self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> 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 but when we hold it with humor, And we actually make that shift, which is an important shift in our journey, a really important shift on a spiritual path, when we go from judging all of the unwholesome aspects we see and unskillful motives, when we go from judging it and judging ourselves to actually taking delight in seeing them, that's a big shift. Because when we take delight in seeing them, we take delight because it's a chance to actually see through them, to let go of them. It's only through seeing them that we can actually be free. And so it does get to a point, ah, oh, anger, great, let me see it. Greed, pride, envy, jealousy, whatever it is, seeing them clearly in the light of wisdom, it's fantastic. The second way that our practice benefits others actualizing bodhicitta is the understanding that the freer we are the more effective is our help to others. Two people stuck in the mud, very hard for them to help each other. One person at least has a foot on solid ground. Much easier to help the other come to safety also. The freer we are, the more effective is our compassionate action in the world. Precious human birth, contemplation of impermanence, reflection on the law of karma and the importance of motivation. The fourth of the reflections that turn the mind towards the dharma is a reflection on what in Buddhism is called the defects of samsara, you know, according to the Buddhist teachings, we are all wandering through these realms of existence, from the lowest to the highest, back to the lowest again. And the example given is like a bee buzzing around in a jar. And it buzzes to the top of the jar, it buzzes back to the bottom, but it's contained within the jar. And we keep doing this. This is the samsara grounds. We keep doing this until we awaken from the dream of ignorance. We can see this not only in terms of from life to life, you know, in different realms, we see it right in the context of a retreat. Within one day, how many different worlds have you inhabited? How many different realms? You know, you might have happy thoughts, about your family, your friends. You might think of work, you know, your work situation, and maybe feel frustrated or excitement about some future plans. You might feel angry, somebody being difficult, or you might feel depressed about the world situation. You might feel calm from your meditation practice. Just up and down, up and down, up and down, as the play of emotions and thoughts and feelings cycle through in contrast to being caught on this whirlwind of mental creation notice those moments when you come out from being lost in a thought lost in some drama lost in some story it's like coming out of a movie And it is that feeling, you know, as if you come out of the movie theater, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, that was everything I was so involved with and entangled with, it was just a movie. And we have that sense of openness, of spaciousness, certain sense of freedom. What seems so real and solid from one perspective, from the perspective of awareness, is seen as being empty and transparent. One Tibetan teacher who said, do not rule over imaginary kingdoms of endlessly proliferating possibilities. But that's what we do. We just endlessly proliferate and live in those realms. That's samsara. That's the bee buzzing up and down mindfulness, awareness, wakefulness, just has the capacity to help us come out of that. Come out to a place of real wakefulness. So these are the four mind-changing reflections, the four reflections that turn the mind towards the Dharma. And in different ways in our meditation practice and then in our lives outside, we need to hold them very actively because they do turn our mind towards the Dharma. They turn our mind toward the nature of this mind. They turn our minds towards freedom. And all of it, all of the work we do, all of these reflections, all of our practice, can be held in that larger motivation, that larger aspiration, May my practice, may my life be for the welfare, the happiness, and the benefit of all beings. We concede that. We concede that aspiration at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of a day. Just with the thought in whatever way you phrase it. May I quickly be liberated for the benefit of all. And there can be a dedication of merit at the end of a sitting or the end of a day May the merit of this practice be joined together with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, so we connect our own efforts with the efforts of all beings in all times, It makes it a very huge offering. May the merit of my practice be joined with the merit of all the skillful actions of the three times, past, present, and future. And may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, the liberation of all beings. Let's sit for a few minutes.